I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Just before Thanksgiving, the Supreme Court blocked New York's coronavirus restrictions on attendance at houses of worship. Uh, the court sided with the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and two Orthodox Jewish synagogues. They argued that the restrictions violated the free exercise of religion guaranteed by the First Amendment. To understand the decision and its implication for future cases, I'm joined by two of America's leading constitutional scholars and two great friends of We the People. Michael Dorff is Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at Cornell Law School. He writes a bi-weekly column for Justicia's web magazine, Verdict, and posts on his own blog, Dorf on Law. Michael, it is wonderful to have you back. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. And David French is a senior editor for The Dispatch and was formerly a senior writer for National Review. David is a New York Times bestselling author and author of the new book, Divided We Fall. David, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Let us begin, as Professor Kingsfield said, with the facts. Michael, tell us what restrictions New York Governor Cuomo had imposed and what the court held in its per curiam opinion. So you'll recall back in uh, March and April when the pandemic was raging in New York City and other parts of the state, the state went to virtually a complete shutdown for a period and then uh, restrictions loosened. As cases began to tick up, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo adopted a color-coded system whereby they were trying to target neighborhoods uh, rather than whole regions uh, as a means of avoiding unnecessary uh, shutdowns. And uh, this had different kinds of restrictions for all sorts of activities based on whether one was in a uh, green zone, an orange zone, a red zone. Uh, for our purposes, the key restrictions were that in an orange zone, which was the sort of uh, penultimate level of severity, uh, houses of worship were limited to 25 people, and in a red zone to only 10 people at a time. Now, these restrictions were actually less restrictive than some comparable secular activities like lectures and concerts, but more restrictive than others like indoor dining and shopping at grocery stores and bike shops and so forth. Uh, and so uh, the restrictions were challenged by a Catholic group and an Orthodox Jewish group saying that they violated the free exercise of religion, in particular that it was discrimination against religion because New York deemed essential services uh, and uh, did not impose these numerical limits uh, for grocery stores, etc. Uh, and uh, they won. The Supreme Court sided with the religious uh, plaintiffs, saying that uh, the public health justification for these severe restrictions was uh, equally applicable to some of the activities that were being permitted, and therefore that was uh, discrimination on the basis of religion in violation of the First Amendment. Um, in, in so doing, they parted with um, uh, two earlier decisions from uh, the spring and summer, one out of California and one from Nevada, 
uh, the court thought that those cases were a little different, although it's notable that the justices who dissented in those cases were in the majority in this case. So it could signal uh, that the current court, uh, following Justice Ginsburg's uh, death and uh, the appointment of Justice Barrett, the court is more open to claims of religious discrimination. Thank you very much for that helpful uh, introduction. David, what would you like to add, if anything, to Michael's statement of the facts? And then tell us more about what he identified as the core of the court's procurium holding, namely that the challenge restrictions violate the minimum requirement of neutrality to religion. And that uh, requirement the court attributed to a case called Church of Lakumi Babalu uh, versus Hialeah. Tell us about that case and how it was applied here. Yeah, so this is a case that I I'm trying to think of how is the best way to phrase the way it was quite unusual uh, and and actually um, what would be the right word to describe some of the exchanges between the justices quite spicy. Um, there was a really uh, sharp, by judicial standards, exchange between Justice Gorsuch. Justice Gorsuch fired some volleys at the chief. The chief responded rather tartly. Um, sort of the, uh, the sort of the judicial, the Supreme Court version of two talking heads yelling at each other <laughs> on a primetime hit, but in very polite judicial language. It was a fascinating case because. I would describe it as as the battle over Jacobson versus Massachusetts. So there's a 1905 Supreme Court case involving mandatory uh, inoculations in the face of a spreading smallpox at epidemic where the Supreme Court granted wide deference to state officials uh, on matters of public health. And so for... Uh, for a while, there has been sort of, a, a, especially at the Supreme, at the Supreme Court has going all the way back to um, South Bay United Pentecostal Church versus Newsom. This is a California case from May. Uh, essentially, what the ju the justices did, uh, or what the majority did in that case, is it cited Jacobson versus Massachusetts, and it essentially said when officials undertake to act in areas fraught with medical and scientific uncertainties. Their latitude must be especially broad. And so the question at hand was, in the atmosphere of the pandemic, and one of the key questions in the case is, in the atmosphere of the pandemic, do some of the normal judicial tests fall by the wayside? Or are we going to continue to apply kind of the what you might call the normal tests, like the Smith test? Uh, or... Um, you know, as you're as you were talking about in Church of Lukumi, Babalui, is, is that that's the best way I know how to pronounce it? Uh, do we apply these normal tests, and or do we sort of have a, a, a specific test, a different test during a pandemic where we're going to grant broader discretion than we would ordinarily grant? And the majority in um, in the most recent case, in the Cuomo case. Uh, said essentially, we're not going to go by Jacobson. Jacobson does not control here the normal free exercise uh, jurisprudence controls. Now, that doesn't mean that a church will win automatically. That doesn't mean that pandemic regulations are always going to be struck down uh, when they restrict the activities of churches. But in this case, it violated the rule of the minimum requirement of neutrality. And also, one other thing I would and so, and so applying this normal test, the Supreme Court struck down the restriction. 
Uh, one other thing that I would note here, I think that's very, very important to the outcome because there have been different church challenges brought uh, in the course of the pandemic. Some of the church challenges, many of the church challenges has been brought by churches who engage in masking and social distancing. So they, they have limited maximum occupancy, they social distance, they mask, or in some cases they, they meet outside and distance and mask. Uh, and some have been brought by churches who do none of those things. Um, there's a case winding up in California state court involving a very large church where people aren't social distancing or masking at all. But in this circumstance, you had the, the, uh, the, the religious institutions had limited their occupancy to 25 or 33 percent capacity, engaged in precautionary measures, and it was uncontradicted evidence that they hadn't had a single outbreak for months. And so I think those facts were very important to the court's final determination. Uh, but the bottom line is, I, I look at this case as a, as a very interesting um, example of the, the, the dispute on how much will a pandemic not just affect the outcome, but affect the, the test the court applies to reach its outcome. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Michael, David very interestingly suggests that the dispute between the majority and the dissent was over to apply the ordinary rules. And Chief Justice Roberts took issue with that characterization in replying to Justice Gorsuch's emphasis on the Jacobson case as having been at the center of the court's California ruling. Chief Justice Roberts said, while Jacobson occupies three pages of today's concurrence, it warranted exactly one sentence. In the California case, what did that one sentence say? Only that our constitution principally entrusts the safety and health of the people to the politically accountable officials of the state to guard and protect. It's not clear what part of this lone quotation today's concurrence finds so discomforting. So disaggregate this exchange. Do you agree with David that uh, Jacobson was a sort of uh, exception to the constitution during pandemics and here the ordinary rules were being applied? Or, or, or with Roberts that uh, that Gorsuch was putting too much weight on, on Jacobson. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I do want to disagree slightly with David and with Justice Gorsuch uh, in the following sense. I do not think that the notion of judges deferring to political actors um, with respect to medical determinations is an emergency-only proposition. So let me give you two cases to show you that this is something that happens relatively routinely in the court's jurisprudence and doesn't have a clear ideological valence. So one is the 2007 case of Gonzalez against Carhartt, in which the Supreme Court upheld the Federal Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, partly on the ground that, as Justice Kennedy put it in his majority opinion, there was medical uncertainty about whether a particular method of abortion was ever medically necessary, and in such circumstances, they would defer to Congress's judgment. Another example is a 1979 case in, called United States against Rutherford, which technically wasn't a constitutional challenge, but had constitutional overtones, uh, in which doctors and patients uh, wanted to be able to prescribe and take an experimental medicine for cancer called Laetril that had not been approved by the FDA. Uh, and the Supreme Court, uh, in an opinion by Justice Thurgood Marshall, sided with the government in saying that the, um, there is a strong government interest in only having people take approved medicines, 
Uh, we have an administrative system set up to deal with that. It's not, we as judges are not especially competent to second guess their judgment. Now, you might say, well, that's a case in which the FDA is exercising a kind of expertise that it has, but that both judges and elected officials lack. And I think that's true. But what elected officials have is a kind of responsiveness to public opinion that courts also lack. And I see Chief Justice Roberts in these cases, uh, in deferring to elected officials, as saying, we're not experts in medicine, and we're not experts in how to balance the very strong public interest in economic activity, in religion, and all the other activities that could be balanced against public health, we're going to therefore leave it to the elected officials. To me, that is not an extraordinary proposition only for emergencies, but a kind of background principle of constitutional law. Uh, David, your response to to Michael's suggestion, and, and also give us a sense of how you imagine the justices would balance the public health concerns against the liberty concerns if they were to decide the case on the merits? Are there other cases that would guide them in that balancing act? And, and, uh, and what would they do? Well, you know, I think that um, let's say let's let's say, for example, um, rather than dealing with the minimum requirement of neutrality, let, let's say, for example, you were tr- applying strict scrutiny um, to a governmental restriction related to the pandemic. Many of these restrictions will pass strict scrutiny. Uh, there's a compelling governmental interest, for example, in the limiting the spread of a deadly disease. Um, many of these restrictions, uh, especially, for example, social distancing, masking, um, are the least restrictive means of advancing this compelling interest. And so I think one thing that needs to be um, stated clearly is that, and contrary to a lot of the commentary you saw uh, online, uh, is that this was not a sanction this case did not create precedence for a sanction for super spreader events. What it was saying is that the specific regulations here were not neutral. It was not saying that a pandemic-related regulation, if it limits religious activity, is going to always be struck down. It didn't, doesn't say that at all. I think one of the problems you have if you're talking about um, pandemic-related regulations and deference, it seems to me hard to argue that there hasn't been an extraordinary level of deference. For example, when you talk about the case that came out of Nevada, where you had limits on church attendance that didn't apply to, for example, being in a casino. (laughs) And so in a normal non-pandemic kind of situation, uh, that case is a winner every time on the, on the part of a, a, a free exercise change uh, and a free exercise claim. In the pandemic, it was that there is, in fact, something about this pandemic that was increasing deference for a time, for a time. And I think one of the things that Gorsuch says in his in his concurrence is, um, as we learn more about a the pandemic, courts are then able to start to apply the kinds of normal scrutiny that they apply uh, to you know, even to health-related restrictions, there isn't a doctrine that just sort of says if there's a health justification, we wash our hands of the case. They'll be subjected to scrutiny. There will be some judicial, uh, there will be some judicial analysis of this. And I think that that's one of the, I, I think that's the the sort of the key aspect of this case is that 
uh, if you're a public official and you're going to be limiting not just houses of worship, but First Amendment protected expressive activity, if you're going to create glaring inconsistencies in your application of various rules and regulations that on their face do not appear to have a, a epidemiological basis, um, it, you're, you're going to be subjected to some very real First Amendment scrutiny. And that sort of the days prior where, you know, and, and Roberts is being a little bit clever <laughs> because if you go back and you look at the opinion in South Bay United Pentecostal Church where he cites um, Jacobson in the, in the body of the opinion, he, there's, I believe, it looks like there's three cases total cited. This was an extremely short opinion and Jacobson was sort of the, was the core of the opinion. So it's entirely fair for Gorsuch to take aim at Jacobson. I think he did it in an ex- excessively snarky way. But I, I just do think that this was uh, a passing of the sort of um, doctrinal torch away from Jacobson, maximum Jacobson deference and back towards conventional legal analysis. Michael, David suggests that the court was applying a version of strict scrutiny or heightened scrutiny or at least normal free exercise analysis. Uh, Justice Gorsuch did indeed say famously or memorably, even if the Constitution has taken a holiday during this pandemic, it cannot become a sabbatical. Where does strict scrutiny come from? Is it from the uh, Hialeah case, the Lukumi Babalai uh, case, or from uh, some other case? Is it premised on the judgment that the regulation isn't neutral or, or is it regulation isn't neutral a result of strict scrutiny? And then tell us something that you've written uh, extensively about why you believe the court was wrong to conclude that the regulation wasn't neutral. So the background to the Lukumi case is an earlier case called uh, Employment Division Against Smith which involved the ritual use of peyote by two Native Americans in Oregon. Um, And the Supreme Court in that case said that Oregon could apply its general prohibition on peyote use to everybody, even those who wanted to use it for religious purposes, because the free exercise clause does not entitle to people, does not entitle people who are engaged in uh, religious exercises uh, to exceptions from neutral, generally applicable laws. In the Lukumi case, the uh, city of Hialeah had adopted a series of ordinances that targeted specifically the practitioners of Santeria. And so it was a case of discrimination. And so the rule coming out of the combination of Smith and Lukumi is that neutral laws of general applicability, meaning just general laws that don't single out religion, are only subject to rational basis scrutiny, the minimal scrutiny that applies, even if in a particular case they burden somebody's religion, uh, but that laws that discriminate on the basis of religion are subject to strict scrutiny. So that's the the origin of this, this rule. The court has not overruled Smith, although it's been asked to, and some justices have uh, expressed a willingness to do so. And I should say, maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, uh, I have some sympathy for the proposition that Smith is wrongly decided. So I'm not hostile to the notion of religious exceptions. But so long as Smith is the rule, one would think the question is, is there discrimination against religion here and not just a burden on religion, because there is undoubtedly a burden. I think everybody reasonable would concede that there's a, a substantial burden in limiting the number of congregants. Uh, the reason why the majority in the per curiam 
in the uh, archdiocese case said that this was discriminatory was because they applied a principle that Professor Doug Laycock has advocated that is sometimes analogized to most favored nation status. The idea is that even if you have a law that treats some non-religious, that is to say secular activities that are comparable to the religious activities exactly the same or even worse, you treat as discriminatory the entire regime if you can find even a single comparable secular activity that's treated better. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh in the Nevada case, I think spelled this out quite nicely uh, in saying that, well, their uh, casinos pose a greater risk of spread um, and their secular activities, therefore, uh, the law that, get, that treats churches better than some lectures, et cetera, is still discriminatory because it treats them worse than casinos. I think I would say that if the most favored nation principle is the right way to understand non-neutrality, then that's correct. Uh, certainly on public health grounds, it was obscene that Nevada was allowing uh, gigantic filled casinos at the time, uh, regardless of what you think about the free exercise question. Uh, but as to the question whether the most favored nation principle is uh, part of the, the existing law, I think you could make it the law, but that would be a rather anomalous uh, conception of discrimination. It's not the way we define discrimination in other contexts, either for equal protection purposes or under uh, freedom of speech. Generally, you ask, is the government targeting the discriminated against activity? Uh, and here that's not true. That is to say, the there are some exceptions, and you could make an argument that there aren't good public health uh, justifications for some of the other exceptions, but it's very hard for me to imagine that there was an effort here to go after churches, synagogues, mosques, and the like. And so to my mind, this isn't discrimination in a, a conventional sense. If you think the result is right, and I don't think it's obviously wrong, but if you think it's right, it seems to me the way to get there is to say that Smith is wrongly decided and the free exercise clause requires religious exceptions. David, what do you think of Michael's interesting suggestion that generally the question is, as he just said, is the government targeting religious activity that wasn't taking place here, but instead the court was adopting without saying so a version of Professor Laycock's most favored nation status, treating the entire regime as discriminatory because they identified a few secular activities that were treated better, including, as Justice Gorsuch said, uh, liquor stores and acupuncture clinics. I, I, I agree with the analysis. I think what's happening is that the Supreme Court is hollowing, has been hollowing out Smith for a while without overruling Smith, at least yet. It's Smith it reminds me increasingly of like the, the lemon test, sort of a zombie doctrine that still exists lurching about the land, but you know, it's easy to avoid and outrun. Um, so I think what's happened is that there has been a hollowing out of Smith. Uh, the Supreme Court is considering a case this term, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, or one of the questions presented is whether Smith should remain, uh, should, whether Smith should be overruled. And what often happens when you see the court hollowing out a doctrine without overturning a doctrine is you see an uh, anomalies in the way in which it decides cases and analyzes facts. And I, I would, I, you know, what, what uh, Professor Dorf just said, what I thought was a very uh, a clear, easy, understand, easy to understand anomaly that is existing with a sort of most favored nation status, which is a lot like a backdoor 
hollowing out a, a back doorway to sort of to overrule Smith without overruling Smith, at least not yet. One other just and the second thing is just as a tangent, uh, I think it would be fascinating to explore the extent to which the war on drugs has impacted the First Amendment, because I really wonder if Smith would have come out the same way if it didn't involve a hallucinogen. And and I, similarly, one of the mo, one of the uh, Supreme Court cases, very rare Supreme Court cases in the last few decades that that turned back a First Amendment claim, Morse v. Frederick, school free speech claim in which a student unfurled a banner outside of school that said "Bong hits for Jesus," and I think as soon as the banner said "Bong hits," he'd lost in the, in the Supreme Court because there's this interesting sort of war on drugs kind of distortion that hovers over the entire Bill of Rights often, but that's, I just took us into way into a tangent. Thank you so much for that. And you also took us into a welcome uh, tangent by recalling Justice Scalia's famous concurrence in the case where he said of the lemon test, like some ghoul in a late night horror movie that repeatedly sits up in its grave and shuffles abroad after being repeatedly killed and buried. Lemon stocks are establishment clause jurisprudence once again, frightening the little children and school attorneys of the center <laughs> Maurice Union Free School District, which was the name of the case. Okay, Michael, so you, you've convinced David by your analysis that the court is sort of moving toward overturning Smith without saying so here. Um, I, I, wanna, I want you to squarely analyze for our listeners how an originalist justice could overrule Smith. I understand that you're open to it. But um, based on our podcast on the Pennsylvania Fuller case, it I wasn't clear that uh, Smith, written by Justice Scalia, uh, was itself uh, justified by original understanding, nor the alternative to Smith, namely the Sherbert and Werner test, which would require that all laws that burden religion are justified by a compelling interest, that that was justified by original understanding either. So if, if you were arguing to Justice Gorsuch, say, as an originalist justice, what argument would you make about why Smith should be overturned and the, and the Werner test resurrected? So to be clear, um, I myself am ambivalent about whether Smith ought to be overturned. I thought it was wrongly decided as an initial matter. I'm not sure whether there is enough of the sort of secret sauce one needs to overcome the uh, requirements of stare decisis to overturn it. The reason I am a little bit cautious is I worry a fair bit that in the hands of this court, going back to the Sherbert regime, which to be clear for our listeners, is the rule that says that even a neutral law of general applicability is subject to strict scrutiny where it burdens uh, free exercise. To go back to that rule these days, I think could potentially threaten anti-discrimination law, especially with respect to uh, gender identity discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination. And there are lots of cases in the pipeline uh, that suggest that. Uh, I think there is a compelling government interest in eradicating uh, such forms of discrimination. I don't think that compelling government interest extends all the way to you know, requiring the ordination of uh, female priests, for example, even notwithstanding the so-called ministerial exception. So I think there, are, there ought to be some limits to the extent of anti-discrimination law that uh, uh, a, a post-Smith regime would apply, but I worry that uh, this court would not stop where I would stop. So that's my main hesitancy in sort of getting on board the let's overrule Smith bandwagon. But if I were hired as an attorney, a hired gun to make the argument, well, sure. Uh, 
he, this is a, uh, a, a case in which the uh, original understanding is, I think, fairly contested. So the, the leading uh, scholarly uh, argument for reading the original understanding contrary to Smith uh, appears in a pair of articles by uh, Stanford Law Professor, former Federal Appeals Court Judge Michael McConnell uh, in the uh, University of Chicago Law Review and the Harvard Law Review, both before and after Smith, uh, in which he argued that best understood at the founding, free exercise meant that you got religious exceptions. Uh, there is some pushback against that. Uh, you see some of the pushback playing out in the Supreme Court cases. Uh, Justice Souter, who I think was the strongest champion of uh, McConnell's view, because he didn't much like the, the Smith uh, decision. Uh, but Justice Scalia himself pushed, pushed back, uh, as did some others. I, I think the, you know, my best reading of the historical evidence is that the, that was not the primary concern of the framers with respect to free exercise. They were concerned about things like established churches in the literal sense. And so, um, you know, you can look to the early hit, early period, but I think the evidence is going to be am ambiguous. Of course, if I were hired to argue the case, I would do a much deeper dive uh, and try to come up with evidence uh, one side or the other. There's also the question of when you look, right? Uh, these are cases coming out of the states the First Amendment, by its terms, doesn't apply to the states, only applies to Congress. Even if you say, well, it applies to the whole of the federal government under Barron against City of Baltimore, the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to the states. What makes the First Amendment applicable to the states is incorporation via the 14th Amendment. And so you might want to look not to the state of free exercise thinking in 1791, when the First Amendment was adopted, but in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, and see what people thought it was that they were incorporating to the extent that we think it's the 14th Amendment that does the work of incorporating the First Amendment uh, as against the states. I should say that Justice Scalia doesn't do much of any of that in the Smith case itself. What he mostly argues is on sort of judicial competence grounds that it would be, you know, not consistent with the role of the court to apply strict scrutiny to laws of general applicability, and thus they oughtn't to do so. And there, I think the best response to that argument is that the court hasn't seemed to had a problem doing exactly that thing in construing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which, while not valid as a limit on the states, is valid as a limit on the federal government, and has been applied by this court uh, as recently as the past term uh, to limit federal action. And so the judicial competence argument kind of fades away. Uh, and as I say, the historical argument uh, is at best uncertain. So I think there, you know, again, if you're hiring me as a hired gun, I think I can do a pretty good job of making an argument to overrule Smith. Thank you so much for explaining that doctrinal debate so well. David, if you were arguing for the court to overturn Smith, on originalist grounds, what would you say? And why do you think it is important that uh, neutral laws of general applicability should be subject to strict scrutiny when they burden religion? And if the court were to overturn, were, were to uh, accept that test, what would the implications be? So, uh, well, the first thing I would do is uh, if I had any uh, spare money lying around, I'd hire Professor Dorf as my hired gun. <laughs> 
to make the arguments that uh, many of the arguments he just made without repeating, uh, you know, uh, his arguments. One, there's a couple of things to acknowledge, I think, or one thing to acknowledge about much uh, originalist, many originalist arguments about the First Amendment. Um, and that is there's not a huge amount of literature that you can draw on to that's really helpful in explaining an originalist application of the First Amendment to, for example, uh, an expansive, large administrative state. I mean, we have a lot of free speech doctrine. We have layer after layer after layer of free speech doctrine that both progressive, uh, both judges nominated by more progressive politician uh, presidents and judges nominated by more conservative politicians uh, tend to agree with um, viewpoint neutrality requirements, um, time, place, and doctrine surrounding time, place, and manner restrictions. If you look at a lot of First Amendment jurisprudence over the last 10, 15, 20 years, you're going to see a lot of cases that are 7-2. You're going to see some 9-0s in there. You're going to see um, a lot of consensus um, brought on, on the part of justices who have different political philosophies. And part of the reason for, I think, for some of that consensus across these different political philosophies is it isn't as if there is a very, very clear originalist roadmap for all the subparts of the First Amendment, as opposed to a very clear roadmap under competing judicial philosophies. That the um, the reality is there sort of has to there has to be some judicial test making in the course of adjudicating these disputes. And I, I, one thing that I would say about the free exercise clause and why I dislike um, Employment Division v. Smith strongly, I mean, I, I, I got to law school the year after it was decided and when like all nine members of the religious liberty bar were up in arms about, you know, religious liberty was a much less culturally contentious issue at that time than it is now. But I, I've strongly disliked Smith uh, in part because as one of the, if you're talking about original understanding of the First Amendment and, and original public meaning of the First Amendment, I think it would be rather surprising to the drafters of the first and, and those who ratified the First Amendment and those who were understanding its meaning in the time. Of course, it was only applied to the federal government, not the states, but that religious free exercise would be so subordinate to the free speech clause, so impotent compared to the free speech clause post-Employment Division v. Smith. It was as if Employment Division v. Smith just demoted free exercise. So that, in, in, in a kind of a fundamental conceptual way, in my view, was contrary to the original public meaning of the First Amendment, which was, that, which was placing free exercise in the absolute sort of hierarchy of individual liberties. And so what Employment Division v. Smith did was it just demoted it. It drained it of much of its potency. And, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, as these issues have been working their way through the court system, that you can see the parameters of an emerging judicial, um, uh, I'm not going to say consensus because there's still sharp divisions, an emerging judicial determination of a lot of culture war disputes in the conflict between, say, free exercise and non-discrimination law or free speech and non-discrimination law. And it's the dichotomy between Bostock and the ministerial exception cases. Um, in Bostock, there was six by 6-3 six, margin, um, Justice Gorsuch writing the opinion, 
extended protections on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity um, under employment non-discrimination protections on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity into, uh, into Title VII uh, and construing them as discrimination on the basis of sex. At the same time, the court just really widened the scope of the ministerial exception. So essentially what seems to be happening is the court is creating a secular and sacred distinction in the application of non-discrimination law so that in the secular context, say a workplace, secular workplace, non-discrimination law is going to have broad purchase. In a religious environment, like a church or a ministry, non-discrimination law is going to have much less purchase. And I, I, and I feel like that's the overarching doctrine that is developing right now. Thank you so much for that very interesting observation. There is indeed a multipartisan consensus of the kind you describe, applying anti-discrimination norms in the workplace, but not outside of it. Michael, your response to uh, David's interesting suggestion. And then I'd like to put on your other hired gun hat, basically argue the other side. And if you were arguing against the overruling of Smith to the originalist justices, uh, what would you say? So I, I think uh, David's uh, insight is, is quite interesting. I, I mostly agree with it. it. It almost seems that at least for the justices who are in the majority in both of these sorts of cases, which is um, uh, Justice Gorsuch, Chief Justice Roberts, sometimes Justice Breyer, uh, he's sort of the, the most... Um, uh, accommodationist of the uh, remaining liberal justices, that it might be that the price of extending anti-discrimination law, as far as they're willing to, is the withholding of this exception. Uh, but that does have this potential to then sort of bifurcate the society into, as David says, the secular and the sacred spheres. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. I mean, distinctions between the secular and the sacred are quite familiar. My worry would be that uh, that is a de facto victory for the sacred, because increasingly the only people who are going to really want exceptions to anti-discrimination law will be religious. That is to say, you don't really need prohibitions on discrimination against people who would be not be inclined to discriminate on those grounds to begin with. There will, of course, be some people who want to discriminate on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation on secular or non-religious grounds, but I think they're going to increasingly be a, a small number of people. So that that would be my my concern, but I think as an observation, it's it's very astute. Uh, second point I would make before moving on to uh, accepting my uh, my newly my new appointment, uh, I'd have to get a waiver from my prior client. Uh, but <laughs> the you know one other thing that I, I that I want another place I want to agree with David is uh, not only were these cases sort of not ideological originally, but to the extent that they were, the ideological valence has flipped. So Smith is decided in 1990, it is mostly the liberals, with the exception of Justice Stevens, who dissent and say, we want free exercise exceptions, and it's mostly the conservatives in the majority. Um, and uh, you fast forward to uh, the current era, even going back a few years with the application of how, how strictly one applies RIFRA, like in the Hobby Lobby case from a few years ago, and it's the conservatives who want to weaken Smith, to broadly construe exceptions under RIFRA and under the ministerial exception. And it's the liberals who want to say, slow down, Smith is the rule. Uh, I think what's happened is that each side has recognized that Smith was a highly anomalous case in which the religious claimant was also 
an ethnic minority, Native Americans, but that in the more common case, uh, it's going to be uh, religious traditionalists, mostly Christian, but not exclusively, as we see in the Brooklyn case, who are making the claims. That's not to justify the flip on either side. I don't think that's a good reason for anybody to uh, choose their principles based on who's going to win or lose, but I think it does explain what's happened. Okay, let me accept my assignment now and try to make the argument. So the first thing I'd say is um, modern-day originalism is not based on the intentions and expectations of the framers and ratifiers. It's based on the original public meaning of the words. The words of the free exercise clause are embedded in the same First Amendment that protects freedom of speech, right? Congress shall make no law uh, respecting the establishment of religion or abridging the free exercise thereof or restricting, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, the premise of the free speech doctrine is that a neutral law of general applicability that happens to be applied in a way that infringes somebody's ability to speak as effectively as they want doesn't infringe their right of freedom of speech. Let me give you an example, a case called, uh, from a, a hypothetical that was raised in a case called Arcara against cloud bookstores many years ago. Suppose that a, um, back in the days when people had the evening news and people watched that, uh, a, uh, an anchorman is speeding down the highway because he's late to get to the studio for his broadcast. Uh, he's pulled over and given a ticket by the cop. He says to the cop, you got to let me go. I got to get to the studio. Otherwise, you're infringing my right to freedom of speech. That would be laughed out of court. Why? Because the speeding law has nothing to do with freedom of speech. That's a general characteristic of free speech law. Another example. Suppose that in Texas against Johnson, the flag burning case, instead of being prosecuted on a, under a law that made it a, a crime to physically desecrate a United States flag, Mr. Johnson had been prosecuted under a law that was neutrally applied that made it a crime to light a public fire except on, you know, in a barbecue pit or something. Uh, um, that would also be uh, unproblematic so long as there wasn't evidence that he was targeted specifically because of his message. Right? So as a general matter, we accept in the free speech context that a law does not infringe freedom of speech simply because uh, it happens to make speech more difficult for some, some people. The law has to target free speech. And since it's the same First Amendment, I would say, on original public meaning grounds, the same rule ought to apply, at least if we're going to be semantic originalists with respect to free exercise. Uh, bravo. Thank you very much. And your, your waiver is now repealed. You can go back to your previous assignment. Uh, David, this has been a great doctrinal debate. I do want to ask you about the um, implications of this ruling for future COVID restrictions in churches. You've emphasized that here, the churches were behaving responsibly and were being uh, discriminated uh, against. There were Religious worship was being singled out for different and worse treatment. Do you imagine this court will and should create uh, bars to COVID-based restrictions on religious worship uh, for the duration of the pandemic? And then more broadly, I, I hear you arguing that uh, free exercise shouldn't be treated as a second-class right, that something closer to strict scrutiny would apply. Uh, different um, conservatives and libertarians would take this in different directions. What are the kind of exceptions that you believe the court should and, and may well recognize under this higher scrutiny in the future? Uh, so on, on the first point, I think that um, if there was a... I, I, it would be hard for me to even see the court 
taking a case like this unless a circuit court had allowed a church to meet without social distancing and without masking. If you if you had a circuit court case where that was, uh, the, you know, that that basic social distancing and masking requirements were struck down as applied to churches, which would be would really surprise me. Uh, but if that occurred, I could easily see I could I could see the Supreme Court uh, upholding masking requirements, social distancing requirements, percentage attendance caps that are consistent with their other kinds of similar activities. Uh, I so in in that circumstance, I that's where I think that the the Supreme Court, even if it applied strict scrutiny, much less the 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 lower Smith test, even if it applied strict scrutiny, would uphold restrictions pandemic-related restrictions that are the conventional restrictions that we all live under, um, or most of us, depending on where, where we are in the country, of the masking and social di- distancing and and uh, percent attendance caps based that are very based on the size of the building and the number, the capacity of the building. I think that um, something that where a religious institution tries to seek exemption from that, even strict, strict scrutiny, they would lose. And I, And I think that um, strict scrutiny, I, I know there's this, this saying strict in uh, theory, fatal in fact, um, it is not always fatal. And, and I, I do think it's, um, what professor Dorf said about a compelling governmental interest in eliminating discrimination, particularly in the secular workplace, even if the discriminator in the secular workplace is a religious individual, say a religious a person of religious faith who runs a secular workplace, uh, such as let's say it's somebody who's quite strictly religious who runs an insurance agency, for example, uh, I would it would be very interesting to me, and I would think highly likely that the Supreme Court would say that uh, that a non discrimination provision that would permit somebody to say fire someone because they're gay but from an insurance agency. Uh, that that regulation would survive even strict scrutiny. Uh, I think that would be quite likely, not inevitable, not inevitable, but I think it would be quite likely. Uh, I think what you're likely to see in a more, in a tension between between non-discrimination law and, and the First Amendment is more like the masterpiece cake shop case where you had in that argument was not that the owner of the bakery can refuse to serve LGBT folks. It was that the owner of the bakery can refuse to use his artistic talent to create a specific work of art to celebrate an event that he did not agree with. It was a much more of a compelled speech case than it was a seeking an exemption, a blanket exempt religious exemption from the application of non-discrimination laws. Um, in fact, I would say, you know, in 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 many ways, some of the even the most aggressive of the religious liberty organizations are very reluctant to bring a case on behalf of a secular employer that seeks a blanket exemption from non-discrimination laws on the on the part of the religious employer. I mean, uh, we we actually have what was it, the Piggy Park case where the Supreme Court in the civil rights era, back when the strict scrutiny standard applied to religious liberty, essentially laughed out of court. The idea that race discrimination could be justified as a religious free exercise in a private business establishment. So I think you're um, the the sort of the ability of a religious person to say in a secular workplace to say I have a 
discriminate for free card, I don't see, even in a strict scrutiny environment, the court being all that hospitable to the claims. I think that it would be much more, it's going to be much more hospitable, as we've already seen, quite frankly, when uh, non-discrimination law collides with a religious institution as opposed to a religious individual who's running a secular institution. Michael, do you agree with David or not that the implications of this heightened scrutiny for religion will not be uh, that secular employers will seek and the court will grant blanket exemptions from anti-discrimination laws, but instead more targeted uh, refusals to compel speech, as in the Masterpiece Cake case? Uh, Or do you think that we're heading down a road that could lead to broader exemptions from anti-discrimination laws? And if so, what kind of exemptions uh, do you envision? Uh, so I, I generally agree, and I mean I hope I hope he's right um, because I think that the vision David lays out is is fairly attractive. Um, let me uh, say one thing that troubles me about the current trend as I see it, and then I'll say a word about Masterpiece Cake Shop. So um, one of the things that I think we've seen increasingly is uh, the court has indulged what I regard as fairly extravagant conceptions of complicity, right? So let me give a, an example. So if there's a, if an employee at a uh, public hospital says that uh, a doctor or a nurse says, I have a uh, profound religious objection to uh, abortion, I think we would all say that in a um, uh, Sherbert, that is to say, anti-Smith sort of regime, that person has a very, very strong claim to say they don't have to participate in performing abortions, right? That's they'd be physically engaged in doing something that they find to be against their religious principles. Um, there are intermediate cases, but at the other extreme, you have cases like the Little Sisters of the Poor, which was not decided uh, on the exact on this exact issue, it was decided on complicated administrative grounds. But the objection that the Little Sisters of the Poor had was that they didn't want, so back up, under uh, regulations implementing the Affordable Care Act, um, employers must provide health insurance for their employees um, or pay a very steep fine, and that insurance must cover contraception. Certain forms of contraception are regarded by certain people as uh, forms of abortion, and they object to having to do that. But the Little Sisters of the Poor were exempt from the regulation Uh, But they objected to signing the form saying that they wanted to get the exemption from the regulation. Now, I don't doubt that they sincerely believed that that signing the form would implicate them somehow in the the subsequent chain of events. Uh, But to me, that's a little bit like somebody saying there, you know, you can't send me a draft notice. Uh, because I object to war. I'm a conscientious objector. And I object to even asking for my conscientious objection, because if I ask for it, you're going to then give it to me, and then you're going to draft somebody else, and that person's going to participate in the war, and then I'm going to be complicit in it. It seems to me that in a complex and um, you know divided society like the one in which we live in, if we're going to get along with one another, we need to be able to regard some things that people with whom we interact do that we don't approve of as their business, right? I don't want to live in a world uh, in which every business is either a 
Chick-fil-A or a Ben and Jerry's. Never mind that I don't patronize either because I'm a vegan. But the, the right, the idea that you know all of your interactions in the commercial sphere uh, implicate you in whatever it is that the people to whom you're uh, you know uh, with whom you're exchanging. Uh, goods and money and services are going to do. Uh, it seems to me the whole notion of uh, du commerce, right, is that we can have exchanges in the marketplace or in the social sphere and yet each retain our own principles. So, so one thing I worry about very much is that the court in this emerging regime is going to be too indulgent of notions of complicity that I think are uh, incompatible ultimately with having a society in which people hold fundamentally different views. One small thing I'll say about Masterpiece Cake Shop is that put aside how the court actually decided the case, and I think it, it raises this interesting question about whether baking a cake is a sufficiently articulate act to count as, a, as freedom of speech. There are nonetheless examples that are much more difficult, uh, whether they involve religion or not, and just speech. And, and the best example, and I just can't help but mention this because I find it so interesting, is in the most recent Borat movie, um, Sasha Baron Cohen, <laughs> disguised as Borat, goes to a baker and asks for a cake on which he asks her to emblazon the phrase, Jews will not replace us. Now, the baker says she's going to comply, which is, you know, horrifying, unless maybe she thinks he's a nut and he's going to threaten her otherwise. But you could well imagine a baker who doesn't want to do that. And if they lived in a state, and there are a few of these, that forbid discrimination based on viewpoint in uh, public accommodations, uh, they would have to. And that, to me, is a serious free speech issue. So I think there are real clashes out there. Uh, not all of them uh, exactly like that. But, you know, who knows what's coming down the pipeline? And some of it probably should come down the pipeline. Thank you very much for that thoughtful intervention and for the first mention of the Borat movie in the We the People pod podcast. <laughs> uh, David, your response to, to Michael's comments. And then your uh, argument to we the people listeners about why you believe that uh, religious freedom and the constitution require uh, that individuals be protected against uh, expressing speech with which they disagree. Why, why, why strict scrutiny for uh, religion you think uh, would lead to a freer society? You know, uh, I, one of the things I, I think um, that religious people, especially um, white evangelicals, are reckoning with right now is there is a difference between religious power and religious liberty. Okay. And what evangelicals have lost is religious power. What they have gained is religious liberty and they don't necessarily like the trade. <laughs> okay. So this is a lot of what's distorting American politics right now. So what, what do I mean about the difference between religious power and religious liberty? When you're, when you're powerful, you feel free, right? I mean, you you have the freedom that your power affords you. When, the difference between power and liberty is liberty is what you exercise against power. So when you are powerless relative to, you know, whether it's a majoritarian government, uh, majoritarian, you're a dissenter from a majoritarian consensus, that's when you need liberty. That's when you need these legal doctrines that protect you from majoritarianism. And an awful lot of white evangelicals have been used to being, and they've come from generations before where there was a lot of religious power and not as much religious liberty. Perhaps the apex example of this is prohibition. So prohibition is sort of, you know, the apex of um, 
of that Protestant religious power in the U.S. And you would think, well, look, look at how much Christianity, respect Christianity had in the culture. But at the same time as prohibition is being argued for and ultimately happening, these pernicious things called Blaine Amendments were just blazing their way through state constitutions. And Blaine Amendments were these highly, extremely hostile, specifically anti-Catholic state constitutional amendments that were designed to very explicitly target Catholic uh, education. And so that's the difference between you had a lot of religious power in the U.S. and not so much religious liberty, because if you didn't have the power, you didn't have much liberty to exercise to restrain that power. And so I think what we've seen is in the last 40, 50, 60 years, and really accelerating since employment division v. Smith and the flipping of the dynamic, as Professor Dorf uh, articulated, is that an awful lot, there's been a big expansion of religious liberty at the same time that even though, you know, white evangelicals are, say, the most powerful faction of one of our two um, parties in the U.S. have perceived that they've lost a lot of political power and cultural power, et cetera. And so that's created a lot of internal friction within the religious community and a lot of divide about how to deal with that, how to accommodate that. And that's part of what's happening and and all of that dis- despair over the loss of power and lack of full appreciation of the gain of liberty is distorting our politics. I just wanted to put that out there because I think that that is a very important part of the dynamic of what's happening. Now, um, let me make my case for liberty. America is an increasingly diverse country. It's increasingly diverse by every, it's probably going to, it's going to get diverse by virtually every meaningful measure from now through the foreseeable future. We're going to have increasing religious diversity. It's not that America is going to ever in our lifetimes become an entirely secular country It's going to have a big secular population. It's going to have a big religious population. We're going to be diverse on ethnicity, on uh, sexual orientation, on gender identity, on race, on, you know, you name it. And in that circumstance, it it was going to become increasingly necessary for us to to embrace pluralism. And, you know, pluralism, in in my view, what pluralism essentially does, I I like the moral framework of it coming from um, Lin-Manuel Miranda quoting George Washington quoting the prophet Micah. (laughs) And this is, um, every man shall sit under his own vine and his own fig tree and no one shall make him afraid. That was afraid. That was, that, that, that was a biblical verse that Washington used almost 50 times in his writing, um, including very famously to the Hebrew congregation of Rhode Island telling this terribly persecuted religious minority that you, we aspire to you having a home in this land. And so when you default towards Liberty, and you default towards freedom of association, free exercise of religion, free speech. In many ways, what you're doing is you're giving meat on the bones of that transcendent moral vision of people with different viewpoints, uh, different faiths, uh, and, and different lifestyles can live together in this pluralistic land. Now, that doesn't mean, the thing about pluralism is it's not utopianism. Pluralism is not utopianism. Why? Because there's always going to be friction at the edges. And Professor Dorf has very uh, outlined extremely well some of these frictions. And so there's always going to be friction between competing communities or communities of different ideas and ideals. But um, the protection, strong protections for free exercise, strong protections for free speech, 
and freedom of association, in my view, are that they put the meat on the bones of the aspiration of American pluralism. They say to different communities that you can have a home in this land and that even large expansions of the administrative state say to deal with things like climate change or to deal with um, healthcare and pandemics at the end of the day still cannot violate that sort of core commitment to America's diverse populations that you can advance, live and advance your values in this community. Thank you very much for that eloquent uh, statement about religious pluralism. Thank you for quoting Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation of Newport. Our friends at the National Museum of Jewish American History had the original uh, a few years ago, right uh, around the corner from the Constitution Center, and it was inspiring to see. Uh, just as this discussion has been inspiring and civil and illuminating, and it's now time for closing arguments. Uh, Councillor Dorf, uh, briefly, in just a few sentences, tell our We the People listeners why you believe that the Supreme Court's recent decision, Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Andrew Cuomo, was wrongly decided. Uh, so first of all, uh, I, I'll apologize for the fact that uh, Mr. French and I have disagreed on so little. Um, <laughs> it makes it makes for a less interesting debate, but a, but an enjoyable conversation. Um, so I, I don't want to say that the case is wrongly decided. Um, I think that if the court had overruled Smith and said we're applying strict scrutiny, that there was a good case to be made that the restrictions here were both over and under inclusive. Now, part of what the court did, I think, was just silly. That is, they said that uh, less strict restrictions apply to people going to liquor stores or bike shops. You don't stay in a liquor store or bike shop for more than a few minutes. You don't stay there for an hour and sing, for example. But uh, a better rationale was suggested in an op-ed uh, by uh, Michael McConnell um, and uh, his co-author, for, uh, Max Raiden, I believe, who's uh, both, uh, both law professors, um, in which they said, well, that's true. Uh, it's not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison to compare worshipers to shoppers. But what about the workers in the bike shop? What about the workers in the liquor store who are there for potentially eight-hour shifts exposed to many people coming in? They're less protected than our people uh, in the worship services. And I think there's a real point there. Uh, and so I would have been much less concerned about an opinion that said, hey, Smith is wrong, we're going back to Sherbert, and now this law is not narrowly tailored. There was also a mootness issue that I thought that they... Uh, could have decided a little differently. Um, but the main, my main objection is to how the opinion was written and also to some pot shots that Justice uh, Gorsuch took unnecessarily at unenumerated rights that weren't really at issue in the case. David, the last word in this wonderful discussion is to you. Tell our We the People listeners why you believe that the Roman Catholic Diocese versus Cuomo decision was correct. Well, I think that uh, as a as an initial matter, as a conceptual matter, I think that one of the when we talk about the word essential, and we talk about essential services, uh, both constitutionally and pragmatically, in in other words, in the way that people live their lives, uh, in uh, religious worship is an essential service. R a religious ministry is an essential service, and so uh, the the 
constitutional as well as political and moral imperative of the government should be to accommodate the existence of that essential service as much as is reasonably possible consistent with public health. And I, I think that at the end result of the case is consistent with that view. Um, now, I completely agree with Professor Dorf about the pot shots <laughs> to uh, Justice Roberts. Uh, I, I found that surprising coming from Justice Gorsuch, to be honest. I mean, we've sort of seen um, uh, my, uh, we've seen some of that from Justice Alito. Um, last last term, he was, uh, again, to use this term, quite spicy <laughs> in a lot of his opinions. Um, and I also would prefer to see the doctrine develop through Smith, the, the reversal of Smith. Um, I think that that is a clearer, cleaner way of uh, bringing... First Amendment do free exercise doctrine back into harmony with the intent of the founders. It's a clear, cleaner way of analyzing, um, a clear and cleaner way of dealing with uh, challenges to statutes. I would have preferred that. I don't like it when the Supreme Court just sort of chips and chips and chips and chips away at doctrine over year after year after year, which leads to often a lot of confusion, leads to sort of the zombie doctrine phenomenon. Um, and so I'm hopeful although I don't think it ends up that the case is going to be this great a vehicle for it as lots of folks thought, but in Fulton v. Philadelphia, that the court will just go ahead and reverse Smith. Um, but I do think the case, the ultimate outcome of the case is consistent with a proper understanding of the role of free exercise in the American constitution. Uh, I think the way it got there uh, is a little bit suboptimal, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, it reached the right result for perhaps some of the some suboptimal reasoning. Thank you so much, Michael Dorf and David French, for a civil, illuminating debate that was neither tangy nor bland, but uh, fragrant with the sweet fruit of reason. I would say, which is a real <laughs> achievement, uh, and that's the goal of this podcast. And we don't always achieve it, but we have today, thanks to your. Uh, thoughtful and illuminating contributions. Michael, David, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Ashley Kemper, and Lana Ulrich. Thank you so much, friends, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to We the People on Apple Podcasts. We so appreciate the reviews. Please keep them coming. They help other people to learn about our wonderful work together. Uh, and as the holidays approach, please remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. It's been so meaningful that many of you have been giving donations of $1 or $5 online at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate or membership. Please keep those coming. It is a signal of our shared devotion to the enterprise of constitutional self-education and constitutional education for all. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.